0: We'll remain standing as we turn now to Acts chapter 2 for the reading of God's Word. Verse 1, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And there suddenly came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams." So those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of the bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles.' Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to your word now, we've we've heard it. Now speak it into our lives by your spirit. Lord, help us to understand what your word says and what it means for us. Convict us of sin. Increase our faith, Lord. Cause us to see great and wonderful things now. In Jesus' name, amen. I know it's a long time to stay standing. Thank you. Um, I know that um, even as I shared last week, this preaching through a chapter at a time, I might not be able to keep up with it. Uh, Just this week, I almost gave up on the notion because there is so much here. But I recommitted myself to say that we're going to do this because, again, I think this is a good practice both for me and my studies uh, to get the big picture, to keep the big picture before us, uh, but I think it's also good for all of us to at times look at God's word this way in these, these big swaths, but they are, do make for long readings and for long time standing, so thank you uh, for doing that. Um, if you've ever traveled much, uh, you know the importance of signs, especially if you've traveled overseas. Signs can both be a great help to you as well as a great frustration to you, especially if you can't read them. Uh, or if you've seen signs, you know, today I've noticed there are more and more signs that are becoming graphic uh, or graphical so that anybody, without, regardless of language, can see them. And some are funny because you look at them and say, anybody knows what that sign means? And there are others where you look at and say, I have no idea what this means. But Signs serve a purpose. Signs tell us where to go and what to do. Uh, When we're driving, they tell us, you know, merge right, stop, enter here, exit here. They also tell us what not to do. Uh, the speed limit tells us don't go faster than this posted speed, or this is a one-way street, do not enter. But signs also give us information. They don't just tell us what to do and where to go, they, they tell us about things and give us information. 180 miles to Miami, hazard ahead, or even things like 50% off sale. Right? They, they give us information uh, that may or may not be relevant to us. But we also refer to objects as signs. If we look in the sky and we see dark clouds, we say it's a sign of rain. Um, If we look at someone's arm or leg or finger and it's swollen and black and blue and uh, they can't move it, we say that's a sign of a fracture, right? If there's yellow dust on the ground and blossoms on the trees, it's a sign that spring is coming. And as Zach told us this morning, that pollen season and allergy season is here. So we looked at things and we realized that there are signs. Some signs are certain and clear. Other signs require some explanation, some interpretation. And some signs aren't perfectly clear. Some signs are confusing, and they need a little bit more explanation. Uh, there have been times where we've seen dark clouds, and no rain has come. Uh, there was a time when, uh, at a church picnic, I was behind a boat on an inner tube before they made those nice things that you can ride on nowadays. This was a tractor inner tube being pulled behind a boat. And I fell off and my arm got caught in the rope and uh, I was taken back to shore. And I was 12 at the time. And you know how your memory can kind of become creative. Uh, I, I know that everybody kind of looked came and looked at me, and they gave their opinions of what the signs were. But the way I remember it was they set me in a chair on the shore of the of the lake, and they lined up as if everybody had to pass by and give their opinion. All I knew was I was in pain. But they people came, and they looked, and they said, well, it's, it's not really black and blue, and it's really not swollen that much, just a little bit. Maybe it's a strain or, or sprain, and, you know, can you move it? And I could move it a little bit. No, no, it's not broken. So my parents finally took me to the hospital. And by that evening, we learned that this was not only a break, but it was uh, a, a bad break. It was going to require surgery and, and a, a, a hospital stay and so forth. So the signs weren't clear. And we needed a doctor. We needed someone with special tools and equipment and some expertise to look at this and say, oh no, we can see the break and uh, you know, this needs this treatment. Well, I think for the people of God, they had the prophets, they had the Psalms, that were, many were prophetic, including Messianic Psalms like we look at today, but they didn't quite understand everything. And even as these things happened, you know, we have the ability to look back and say, how could they miss it? It was right there all along. But we see an example today of devout men and women who had to have Scripture explained to them and taught to them. This isn't a bad thing. Um, Can we not all remember different points in times where we had read Scripture over and over and then someone explained it to us and we thought, I've never seen that before. I've never understood that before. So this isn't a bad thing. This is just part of growth and maturity. We see certain patterns emerge in Scripture and today is an example of one of those where uh, a sign is given, the sign is explained, and then there's a result or a fruit of that sign. And so that's one of the patterns that we see uh, in this second chapter of Acts, and it's how we're going to look at it today. The sign, uh, the explanation, and the fruit. So let's begin in verse 1 with the sign itself. In verse 1, the day of Pentecost arrived. They were all together in one place. So this has been about a week since the ascension of the Lord uh, to, to Pentecost now. And if you remember last week, he told them, wait, wait for the promised Holy Spirit. He didn't tell them how long. Uh, And as we know with, with prophecy and so forth, sometimes it's a short time and sometimes it's long. And so maybe some of them thought it was going to be any moment and others thought it was going to be a long time. Uh, Pentecost comes. Pentecost was a, uh, something they were all accustomed to. It was a national holiday. It was a high Jewish festival, one of three uh, Jewish festivals that were celebrated annually. And as I read about Pentecost and tried to understand kind of its ins and outs, it really reminded me of our Thanksgiving. It was a, it was a harvest festival, and it was a time uh, when celebration was given for God's provision. Uh, it was at the end, or it was really at the beginning of the har- harvest of the barley, but the end of the season, toward the end of the season, the beginning, as soon as the sickle hit the barley, it was this time of Pentecost to thank God for his provision. Uh, the word means 50th day, and the idea was this is 50 days after Passover. So it's a week of weeks, a week being seven days, seven weeks or seven that. It's 49 days. This is the day after. So this is what Pentecost means. And this was something that everybody celebrated every year, just like our Thanksgiving. And it was a time when many Jews came back to Jerusalem because one of the requirements for all male Jews was to come to the temple on Pentecost. And so a lot of people would have been in town uh, to celebrate this. And in God's providence, this sign is given before all of these visitors and, and the people. So If you look in uh, Deuteronomy, an explanation of what Pentecost means, Deuteronomy 16, it says, Then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks, it was also known as the Feast of Weeks, to the Lord your God with a tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who's within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you at the place the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. So you see that list of people. It doesn't leave anyone out. Everyone is to be a part of Pentecost. Everyone is to be a part of this Feast of Weeks. And so uh, there's Thanksgiving, there's celebration, there's joy, and there's also remembering. He says, remember that you once were slaves in Egypt. So there's this theme of redemption and deliverance. Now the text tells us that they were all together in one place, all meaning who we were just looking at in chapter 1. So this is the 12 apostles now. Uh, The text tells us the first time it uses the phrase apostles. Uh, The 12 apostles, the 120 disciples. Um, and, And then we see as we read the text, there's other people there as well, these devout Jews. And so... The first time, if you read quickly through Acts 1 and 2, you might think that the, um, they were still in the upper house that they were in before. I, I don't think so. I think at this point, the, the term house is used, but it's the same word for house of God. Uh, I think it's, it's more likely that they were actually in the, the, the porticos, the, the outer temple where Gentiles could come, everyone could come into the outer courts of the temple for the this celebration. This, is, this would have been a routine uh, practice at Pentecost, what would have been happening. And so I think uh, this would explain then why all of these other witnesses were amazed and perplexed. They too witnessed the phenomenon. Uh, It doesn't really matter. The particulars, my point in explaining that is just to help us understand it a little bit. What is significant is what happens next. In verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a rushing wind, or like a mighty rushing wind. It was a sudden, it was a surprise. Um, You know, the winds have picked up in the last 24 hours, and we, because we're in a new place, we're in a new house uh, up here at the church this week, uh, even last night, it's a new building, getting used to sounds. Well, with the wind blowing more, you hear more things, and it can be uh, alarming at times, as well as uh, just confusing. What was that? Uh, it gets your attention. Well, this was not just the kind of winds, I think, that we've experienced these gusts. This was a mighty rushing wind. There's a lot of description in that. This was a powerful thing to get people's attention, and, uh, and, and it did. Uh, so, uh, it's not subtle, it got everyone's attention, and then these divided tongues look back, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and arrested and, and rested on each one of them. Uh, again, the them here is not just the believers, but it's also these other witnesses. Uh, I think others saw this, they saw it as a sign and a wonder. God was showing himself, our God is a, is a spirit, he doesn't have a body, uh, he's invisible, But at times in history, he manifests himself in ways that are visible. And we see this throughout the the Old Testament in in numerous ways. The burning bush. uh, We see these are theophanies. This is the way God uh, shows himself to his people. And so this would be one of those things. This mighty rushing wind and then this fire that rests on each one. Um, Fire, of course, is a symbol of the way that the Lord reveals himself. I already mentioned the burning bush. Uh, We see it uh, with the temple, the tabernacle, and later the temple, the pillar of fire. We talked about the cloud last week. Now we see the fire. Uh, Elijah went to heaven in a chariot of fire. And so fire is, is of course, a, a sign of God's presence. And although the word tongue is used to describe the shape of the flame, and if you think about it, if you look at a candle, you know, you can understand, or if you look at a small flame, you can understand. We talk about tongues or flames. You can see why that, that description would have been used. But I don't think it was just a coincidence that the description was used. It was pointing to something that was about to happen, of course. And that is something supernatural, something miraculous was going to happen that, again, was going to get everyone's attention. So this new dawn is, is appearing. Uh, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, the text says, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You know, John the Baptist had prophesied, I, you know, I've baptized with water, but Jesus, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And we see this being fulfilled now. So unlike the previous days when God's Spirit had shown up at different times and places in history for different purposes, now the whole idea of God being with his people was new. Uh, You think of the idea of tabernacle, right? Uh, God came and revealed himself in a certain way, and he was with his people in the tabernacle, later the temple. Uh, He led them, but there was still separation, wasn't there? Uh, Only the priests could go into the holy And only the high priest could go in the most holy place or the holy of holies. And so the people were aware of that. If you remember, the the, the entire nation of Israel would camp out around the the temple or the tabernacle would be in their center. So they would see this daily. Uh, They would know God's presence was with them, but it was still somewhat removed. And then God puts on flesh, and He tabernacles among us. That's the word for the idea of Him putting on flesh, that He came and lived among us. His name is Emmanuel. But even then, it was just for 33 years, wasn't it? And you and I didn't get to experience that, so there was this temporary sense. But before He left, He promised His disciples to send the Helper. And as we saw last week, He said, It's to your advantage that I go away, that the Spirit will come. And so we have an advantage that we have the Holy Spirit now with us. As believers, the Holy Spirit dwells in each one of us, not in a temporary way, but in a permanent way. And sometimes this is hard for us to believe because, frankly, sometimes we don't feel it. Sometimes things happen. Uh, We do things and we think, you know, how could I have the power of the Holy Spirit if I did this or if I did that? And we have to come back to truth and be reminded that God's Spirit is with us but it also points to the fact that we are still fallen and we're still wrestling in these fallen bodies with with sin and the effects of sin and, and the presence of sin with us. And we look for a day when that fellowship will be made perfect. And John writes in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, describing that day, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face. That's what we long for, right? When we're with God perfectly and the veil is removed, right? The thing that we look through now dimly as a glass is gone. So this was a sign and a wonder, and the purpose of it was to magnify Christ and to edify believers. We know that because that's what the Spirit does. And First Peter tells us that as, as it's uh, describing how the gifts are administered, right? The, the, the gifts of the Spirit... Just like this was up to the Spirit, the Spirit's prerogative here in who He gave the tongues to. He also gives gifts according to His own prerogative. But He gives them for two purposes. One is to magnify Christ and the other is to edify believers. 1 Peter 4, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So glorifying Christ is one of the purposes of this administration of the Spirit. The other, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, in a longer explanation of the gifts of the Spirit, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So the gifts aren't given to us for our own whims, for our own benefits, but for the, they're for the benefits of each other. And this is how we're to use our gifts to benefit one another, and uh, when it comes to these things, sometimes people want to make it more about themselves. And that temptation, of course, I think is there for all of us if we check our own hearts. And we have to remember, it's to magnify Christ and to benef- excuse me, benefit others. So here, in, back in Pentecost, what's happening here? God sovereignly brought into town these people um, who would, would have come. Again, it's an annual tradition, just like people coming in town for a holiday, my allergies have really been hammering me this week, so I'm dry, sorry. They would come into town, they would hear the gospel, God would save at least 3,000, and then they would go back out with the gospel message. All of this within God's plan. And Luke provides this list of people that are, uh, it's a pretty exhaustive list, we don't have time to unpack it, but this not only certain geographies that are covered, but also language groups. So now God's truth is no longer confined to the nation of Israel. It's no longer confined to a geographical place, Jerusalem and Israel, but it's now going to go and become worldwide. The gifts of languages that the, the disciples got were understandable languages. They were known languages, real languages. These were not languages they had studied. That's why it was a miracle. That's why those who heard it were surprised. Why, how do these Galileans know these you know, kind of rednecks? That's the, the, the way that the Galileans were seen. Um, how did they learn our language and how are they speaking it? Because it was so dramatic. It happened so quickly. Well, this was a supernatural work of God. It was a miracle. This was not a a common occurrence. There's not an explanation for this. And it was devised to get people's attention. It was devised to get credibility to both the message and the messenger. And it was devised to give glory to God. And we see that happen in the text. If you look in verse 7, they were amazed and astonished, right? It got their attention. If you look down in verse 37, their response was, Brothers, what shall we do? Right? It gave they, they, they received the message as credible and they responded to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse forty-one, about three thousand received his word and were baptized. They gave glory to God. So the purposes were achieved here in the giving of this sign and wonder. The purpose of a sign is never a sign, uh, is never the sign itself, right? Have you ever seen the sign? It's usually in the comedic section of a store. This is a sign, right? The reason, I mean, if you've never seen it, you know, it's because it's kind of silly. It makes you laugh. I don't know why, you know, maybe I should get that and, and put that in my office because what's the point of that, right? The point of a sign is to point you to something else, and that's what makes that funny. This is a sign. Okay, what? You know. A sign points to something other than itself. It always has an object. And unfortunately, many Christians get wrapped up in the sign itself. And even today, people in the name of Christ get wrapped up in this. The purpose of the sign was always to point to Christ to magnify uh, God. We saw this happen in Jesus' earthly ministry when he fed the 5,000. And again, when he fed the 4,000, right, people wanted more food the next day. They were hungry again. They weren't really interested in the message of Jesus. They just wanted more food. They were more interested in the sign. Now, lest you think that signs and wonders uh, don't really apply to us today because we don't see those, um, let me just remind you that we have two signs that we participate in, signs and seals. We call them sacraments. We do these regularly, right? The Lord's Supper and Baptism. These are signs. They point to something. And uh, they 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 do the same thing, right? They come just as we see what Peter's doing here today. They we 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 take the sign, we explain the sign. It's never the sign is never given, uh, at least in our denomination. And I think biblically it can be argued that the signs should never the sacraments should never be given without the preaching of the word. We don't do them privately. We don't do them secretly. We explain, we exposit God's word, we proclaim Christ, and we magnify Him. And then as they're given. There's fruit, there's result. At least there should be, right? As we participate in the sacraments, there are things that happen. The Lord not only uh, reminds us, it's not a, just a reminder, of the Lord's Supper in particular, but it's also a sense of spiritual nourishment. But even baptism. Um, even though we we are witnesses typically of baptism when someone's baptized as believers, but it's a sign that's given to us. It's, it does something for us. It reminds us what we were given in history past, and it points us to the future when the Lord will return. So we see Peter provides this in his preaching. He now explains what's going to happen. Now, one of the things that, that stands out to me... Um, uh, most of all in this text, is that Peter's a totally different person. If you think it was just a few weeks ago that he was by that courtyard fire when Jesus was arrested and he was denying that he even knew him to a teenage girl. Now that's not a slide against teenagers or a slide against girls, but my point is Peter was a big burly fisherman, You know, a man's man. He, he wasn't a timid guy and he, his mouth always got him in trouble. Didn't it? You know, he, he ended up being rebuked by Christ. So here he was afraid and timid and feared with fear. And just a matter of a few weeks, transformation has happened. Don't have time to unpack all that. It's something just to look at and, and recognize what God can do in our lives. This should be encouraging for us. It is for someone like me that God can do this work. He doesn't need a lot of time, He can do it on His own. At any time, and he did this in the life of Peter, from weakness and fear to now boldness and leadership. He took charge. We saw this last week with the replacement of Judas Iscariot. It was Peter who stood up and said, "This is what we need to do." And today we see he stands up to preach the word of God, and he does so with without fear, but with boldness. Because some of these men, you think of the audience. I mean, there wasn't a friendly audience, right? Some were already mocking that these guys are drunk. Uh, they were questioning, what is this about? What are these guys doing? How can we hear this language? There was a sense of, of uh, questioning. And, and Peter gets up and he responds boldly and corrects their thinking and he brings them to Scripture and then he explains the Scripture. Four things that I want us to see about his sermon. One is his sermon is biblical throughout. He doesn't stand up and give his thoughts and opinions. He doesn't stand up and give uh, something that manipulates emotion or uh, tries to woo people with uh, psychology. Uh, I think R.C. Sproul summarized it really well in his commentary, uh, which if you come across it, he's got a commentary uh, on Acts that is, Uh, it's from his sermons. It's very devotional. You would enjoy reading it. If you want to read more, I've just enjoyed uh, reading it. And I can't help but read R.C. Sproul's, any of his stuff without hearing his voice. Uh, I wish that we could duplicate that. But listen to what he writes. He says, he did not stand up and give his latest views of public opinion or a psychology lesson, nor did he scratch the itches of the people by giving them something to lay their fascination upon. He took his hearers immediately to the Word of God, which is the only kind of authentic preaching there can ever be in the church. We've got to go to God's Word. That's where the power lies. And so my aim and my hope as I preach week in and week out is not that I get up here and give smooth talks. Uh, I'm anything but smooth. I know that. But I take you to God's Word, and I let you see the beauty of God's Word, and I help us understand what God's Word says and means for our lives. If you look in verse 17 and verse 25, you notice he quotes scripture, right? He either read it or maybe he recited it from memory, but he takes them to the text and then he explains the text. And what that does is it places the authority on the Word of God and really on God himself, not on the speaker. The authority is not in the preacher. The authority is in the Word of God and that's what preaching this way does. The next thing we see about his sermon is that it's Christ-exalting. Notice that his exposition isn't just an explanation of things, right? But he's taking them to what Christ has done. Look at verse 22, for example. As soon as he reads uh, from uh, the, the passage in Joel, he goes right into saying, it was, this, is, this is about Christ. This, is, this was pointing to Christ, the coming Messiah, and Jesus is that Messiah. So he's Christ-centric in his preaching. Uh, Thirdly, his sermon was preached reasonably and without fear, right? He was bold. And he didn't just uh, try and manipulate them. Uh, Not only was he bold, but he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He didn't stand up and say, it's my opinion that Jesus is the Messiah, but he took them back to their Scriptures, their holy book, our Old Testament, and said, look, see for yourself. This same man that you crucified was and is the Messiah, so he was bold and he was clear and he, used, he preached with reason. And then fourth, his sermon, people called, his sermon called people to faith and repentance. His sermon called people to faith and repentance. Now every sermon doesn't call people to faith and repentance in the same way. It's not always as explicit in some sermons as it is in others, but it should always be implicit. The Word of God should call both uh, believers and unbelievers to faith and repentance. For believers... It's a continual repentance of our sins. It's something that why we confess our sins every week, we come and we confess our sins to God. But we also, we're, 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 we're growing in our faith. Our faith is hopefully increasing in measure. But I think any sermon should, that, that, that is aimed to help us that's both uh, biblical and Christ-centric is going to have some components uh, like this, the holiness of God and our own sinfulness. Hopefully sermons that, 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 that are at Christ the King uh, present God as holy and pure and help us see our own sinfulness. Uh, hopefully our sermons show the beauty of the law and of the grace that meets the requirement of the law that we can't, right? Uh, hopefully it shows the freedom of faith in Christ that releases us from earning anything, The gospel, right, that hopefully that is proclaimed as we preach that this is not a burden on us, but actually a freedom after that conviction of sin. We realize that in Christ our sins have been dealt with and that we've been imputed with his righteousness and we're free now. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And also the relief of repentance and the restoration that brings joy. That no, our lives are not perfect and yes, we still struggle, but God is doing uh, a beautiful work in each of our lives in restoring and, and building us into the image of Christ. So this doesn't mean that preaching is a formula, uh, that we, 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 there's a formula that we follow, but that preaching isn't just a good talk. Preaching takes us to God's Word and shows us who God is. So this is what Peter does in this example, the sign, now the explanation, and then finally the fruit. Verses 37 to 47, we see the evidence of the preached word. In that very, in, in, right away, in verse 37, what happens? They were cut to the heart and asked, Brothers, what shall we do? The preacher doesn't cut hearts. Um, a preacher who tries to cut hearts, I think, can be uh, in danger of trying to manipulate people. That's the Holy Spirit's job. The preacher proclaims the word, the truth, and the Holy Spirit does the work of cutting our hearts. And hopefully the preacher's heart is cut with the hearer's heart. So it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work when people are convicted of sins. It's evidence that God's at work. And it's a clear sign of his effectual calling when people respond, what should I do? What am I to do? Which is exactly what happened. And the crowning evidence that we see is that they received the word. In other words, they believed And about 3,000 were added to the, the number there that day. Uh, The second fruit of the sign uh, really is an explanation. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. I think when I read that, I left out the article, The. The articles here are important because they point us to specific things. And they give us an outline of what marks a biblical church. These are some of the marks of what a church should look like according to Scripture. Now, we live in a day and age when uh, churches are marked more by people's preferences and, and uh, you, you can see this when you talk to people, why people you know, leave a church. You know, they, they, maybe they take a vow on a commitment and those preferences aren't met or there's something more exciting down here. Our preferences are fine. There's nothing sinful necessarily about our preferences. But there ought to be marks from Scripture of what the church is and looks like that aren't up for negotiation so that we know what it is that God requires of us when we come together. And I think we can see this in a number of places in Scripture, and I'll just show you these two, the one that we have before us today. The preaching of the Word, this is, this is what Peter's describing, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Uh, this would later become the canon of Scripture. Uh, so they preach the Word. There's fellowship and living in community. This is another mark of a biblical church. The sacraments... Um, There's some debate over whether the breaking of the bread was was the Lord's Supper or not. I think the definite article there points to that, even though the definite article isn't in English here, it is in the Greek. So it points that this is the Lord's Supper and then to prayer as well. So these are four marks of a biblical church, and hopefully these are things that will always define uh, Christ the King preached word, fellowship, living in community, sacraments, and prayer. And just to to give you another passage where the same thought, it's not as, the the list isn't as lengthy, but it's the same pattern that we see in the Great Commission, right? When Jesus sent out his disciples, what were they to do? Make disciples, teaching them to obey all I commanded you, baptizing them, sacraments, teaching, we see these things. We know Christ taught his disciples to pray. So we see these patterns elsewhere in Scripture of what the church Should look like so. It's not up just simply to our preferences. We can have those, but it's really up to what God's word is as far as how the church is defined. Um, Another aspect of of this before we wrap up of this preach word, the fruit that we see here is this description of how they cared for each other, how they lived in community. this uh, passage of Scripture has been, I think, uh, misunderstood by some. Some have used it so to support the idea of communism, that we would all live communally together. And that description, somebody could maybe try and understand that. I don't think that's, that's here. It certainly wouldn't be supported by larger parts of Scripture. Um, I think we have to understand communism Communism is rooted in atheism. And although communism may not be the battle that it was uh, 50 you know, years ago, uh, secular humanism, which is an offspring of that same thought pattern of atheism, God doesn't exist, and humans can do everything in their own power, is certainly uh, a battle that we fight to this day. But what we see here in this, in this passage, but also in the larger passage of Acts, is that people gave of their own volition as they were led and we're free. And of course, we know this from 2 Corinthians, right, that God loves a cheerful giver. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And in Galatians 6, we see this priority of our giving and our caring to be in the household of faith, Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So there's this priority of caring for each other as believers that becomes then a testimony to an unbelieving world. That ought to be a mark of our church. Now, of course, this doesn't do away with the command to care for the poor. When Christ announced his ministry, he quoted Isaiah in Luke, right, Luke four, and he said, "The Spirit of God is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor." We see the command throughout the Old Testament. We know that Israel was disobedient in this, and that they they lived high on the hog and didn't care for the poor. That command is still there. This doesn't uh, remove that, but it shows where the priority is: that there should be a sense of caring, that we're aware of each other's needs, that we're caring for each other's needs, and that people who come in and join our congregation know that they are also being cared for. And I can tell you just in the short time that we've been here, it's been a great testimony and encouragement to me to see how you are doing that. So I praise God for that. The last thing I want to point out from this text, and that is the last part of the the text itself, that they were praising God and having favor with all the people. Uh, So the Lord was adding to their number uh, every day, it says. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let me work backwards through this uh, because it's the Lord who saves, we don't control the numbers that are being added to it. We know this, right? Jesus promised that, uh, rather, uh, we, we don't control the, the, the number of that. That's the second point. But coming back to this, uh, the question, though, remains, are we praying to that end? Right? We, we can't control who responds to the Spirit, but are we praying to that end, that the Lord would bring in the harvest? And are we laboring to that end? how will they hear unless someone speaks unless someone preaches unless someone proclaims the good news so as a challenge can we pray to that end can we pray as a congregation that the lord would add to our midst those who are being saved the second thing working backwards is they had favor with all people again this is something that we don't have control of completely right jesus promised that the world hates, hated him the world's going to hate us we can't control what the world does but we can work to an end that we are above reproach, that we have a good testimony in our community, in our neighborhood, right? by simple things like obeying the law, but also by serving others, by being merciful and forgiven, by fighting for justice, by lifting up the downtrodden and the oppressed. All of these things, certainly many many others, would give us a good reputation with outsiders. So, can we prayerfully consider what we can continue to do and what new things that we could add to what we're doing to shine the light of Christ here? in the Treasure Coast region. And then lastly, they were praising God. And this is something that we can do. It's something that we've done today and that we do each Sunday and hopefully that we'll continue to do. And this is a testimony to not only each other. Our coming together is an encouragement to those around you. Our singing together, our uh, confessing together is a testimony not only to your own heart but to those around you. So can we pray that God would give us more and more opportunities to do that, not just together as a church on Sunday, but to praise Him outside of the four walls as we have opportunity. So a sign and a wonder were given. It was explained and it produced fruit. And I don't think that the timing of this was a mistake, uh, that this all happened on Pentecost. Remember, Pentecost was a harvest festival, and God is reaping a harvest. It's a harvest of souls. It's a harvest of people. It's a spiritual harvest. As we saw last week, the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. And so he is, at this point in history, as we're looking today, beginning the reaping of this harvest that continues to this day. This harvest is still going on. And so this message that Peter proclaimed is a message for us today. Repent and be baptized. If you have never put your faith in Christ, I would call you today to look to Christ in faith, to repent of your sins, and find the forgiveness that's in him. But for you who are believers, I want to encourage you to pray to the Lord of the harvest that He would send out more laborers, to be aware of the harvest that He's bringing in and pray to that end. Work toward the harvest by sharing the hope that we have within us. And also, rest in the completeness of the harvest. Rest in that you are God's child and that you're forgiven. Uh, from the words of Jesus, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness to us in Christ. Thank you that you uh, have made clear to us who you are, uh, what you've required of us, and then what you've done when we couldn't meet that requirement. That you have done Uh, and the work of both the, the one who is just and the justifier of our sins. Thank you for that work. Lord, I pray that you would make us a church that's marked by being biblical, that we're committed to the preaching of the word, that we're committed to prayer, to the sacraments, to living together in community and in faith, sharing with each other the burdens and the needs that we have. Lord, that that would then be a testimony to others that as they come in, this would be a church that's marked by the preaching of the word, the declaration of the gospel, uh, us giving the reason for the hope that we have in us, that we might see, Lord, people being added to our midst, those who are being saved. Lord, would you do that? And I pray that you would use the people in this very room to accomplish that, as they speak to their friends, their neighbors, their family members, their loved ones. Lord, that the gospel would ooze out of us, both in word and deed, and that you would call many to yourself and save them for your glory and for your great name. And it's your name I pray. Amen.